Rick and Perp, Perp and Rick, however you want to say it. Um, this is our debut episode. Well, there will probably be some ironing out of kinks as we go, but we've known Rick and I have known each other for 28 years, give or take, yeah. um, through Prodigy Online Services back in the day. Uh, we met through our mutual appreciation of its band Chicago. Yeah, that was a good time back in those days on the the Prodigy days. Um, I don't know if a lot of people even remember that, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> those bulletin boards I think was the first sort of foray into like this greater worldwide social network that we all exist in now. And uh, it was a really good opportunity to meet some people and obviously share our our, our love of the band Chicago, which we're gonna talk a little bit more about too especially when we start talking about you know greatest albums and things like that but right i thought that was uh that was a fun little time there especially as a teenager kind of oh absolutely being part of that <laughs> yeah, getting our foot in the door pre-world wide web <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was that was the fun days too of when uh like we had to get a second line in my house to be able to do that because I was on there so often that nobody could actually make any calls. Uh, so it, it uh, and then if somebody did pick up the phone, then you ended up with the kind of the break in service on there. Yeah. And and my mom yelling down the hallway saying, get off the internet or not even internet then get off that computer board yep. or whatever you're on. So yeah, it was, uh, it was good times. <laughs> still, still connect with a lot of those people even today. Actually, connected. I, I was still connected with a few for a while, and I'm kind of on again, off again with a couple of those folks um, here and there. I mean, even I was only on Prodigy for about one year because back then for me it was a long distance call. I was small enough town where the nearest uh, dial-in because back then, of course, they had to dial in, was um, over an hour away. So it was a long-distance call. So I, I was kind of limited. My parents would have shot me if I was on any more than I was because the phone bills would have been insane. Yeah, it would, I, I definitely remember um, if I was out of my dad's house, that was the case, and I'd have to make those long-distance calls. But I think for for me, when I turned 18, it was sort of a – a big sort of change, and my parents are like, well, if you want that, you're going to have to pay for it. Well, that was 1995 a month or something like that, which back in 1992, 93 was that was a lot of money for a kid that only made like 200 dollars a week. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and like, yeah, for me, throwing the, a phone bill on top of that, it, it was a no go. That's why we only had it for about a year. Um, 
had AOL briefly after that too. Um, but that never, I don't think that had the same vibe or same atmosphere as Prodigy did. There was definitely something unique and special about Prodigy. Yeah, I, I just enjoyed finding other people that liked Chicago and some of the other bands I was into at the time, um, as much as I did. And then, of course, you know, being able to experience uh, talking about this band that, you know, back in the pre-internet days, or pre-Google days, when you couldn't actually look them up, um, I had to go to the library and look up, like, the Rolling Stone book of bands type of uh, books and, you know, find out about, about them. But finding all these other people actually, like, at, oh, I've met the band. Well, that was pretty, that was pretty neat. Yeah. You've actually met the band, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. The, uh, the the association of Chicago enthusiasts. Oh yes, oh that was a fun little uh, newsletter. It wasn't even really a magazine because it was all just regular printer paper, and I think it was printed out on dot matrix printers at, at in the early stages, and maybe later on laser, mm-hmm. but. It was definitely very primitive for its time. The, the pictures in there were all kind of grainy, but it gave it a cool feel. I mean, it was it was a very unique look. <laughs> <laughs> We've come a long way. Oh, they absolutely have. Yeah. Well, I guess that's kind of our our introduction of of how we we met. Uh, reconnecting many years later, I think on Facebook. Yeah, and I think it was uh, Jennifer, our, our mutual friend Jennifer, who we reconnected through because I think you and I were both friends with her, and then we saw we were each friends with her, and we friended each other at that point. Yeah, that sounds right. And uh, and and she's still pretty active on there sometimes on on Facebook, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, there were some other people on there that I remember um, that were pretty active members, and I always kind of wonder what happened to them. But you know, it's it's good to be here now, and it's good to be doing this this podcast and talking music, which is one of my I mean, favorite things to do in the world. So oh, mine as well. When I was living in Ohio, I had a friend who, after watching the movie American Psycho, he said. You, when you talk about music, you remind me of Patrick Bateman. It's kind of scary, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think the thing that uh, allows us um, to kind of go back and forth on this is as we as we kind of in, you know endeavor in this this process here is you are definitely a a more of a student of the history of of music uh, as and, and I'm I'm a kind of a creator of it and it kind of all comes together. I mean, I know my history, but I, I have got to admit that you, you definitely take it to a whole new level uh, compared <laughs> to myself. Well, I'm, I'm growing up. I was got the guy who, when I bought a new cassette or CD later on, I was the guy who would read the liner notes. I mean, down to the special thanks too. Uh, so I, I actually got into Toto through reading the liner notes of other albums and seeing the name Steve Luke that are popping up over and over again and seeing Jeff Porcaro popping up over and over again. 
that's how I learned that Jason Sheff uh, played Sadowski bases was from yep. reading the uh, Chicago 21 liner notes. <laughs> I remember that. I did, I, I did the same thing. I remember that too. I've, and it, speaking of the, that, it's such a shame they never play anything from that album live. I, I think it's a very underrated album. Oh, I would, I would agree. Um, if, if nobody's ever taken the time to listen to it, and hello, well, it was like two. Um, right. I think they they kind of miss what's deeper in that. It didn't help that Umberto uh, Gettica remixed it because I mean he took out most of the drums, John Keane's drums, and replaced them with drum machines and drum loops. And he. Uh, I think you pushed the horns deeper into the mix so they were barely audible songs. I mean, after the Ron Nevison mix is out there for anyone who wants to look for it. It's, I think YouTube has has it out there. But the original mix is, it's almost like a Steely Dan album in that there's a lot of space. I mean, you can really appreciate the, it doesn't feel so compressed like the eventual studio release. Ario Speedwagon could have recorded Chicago 19. Journey could have recorded Chicago 19. There's nothing, there's not enough there to make it sound like Chicago. Whereas 21, I think Nevison kind of learned from the mistakes of 19. He he really brought the Chicago sound back into it that had been missing on the previous album. I, I would I would completely agree with that. It was a you know, you start to think about like if it were you or who do you love. Especially those two stand out to me. Um, but the but the Robert Lamb song, one from the heart, also does. They are definitely like rocking Chicago pushing songs. Um, and I mean, you know, obviously you're not going to find those on an early Chicago album, but it's it's like kind of a natural evolution of the band. Yeah. At that point, whereas I thought that some of the stuff like on Chicago 19, like you brought up, was not an evolution of the band. That was I mean, I, I honestly, when I was a kid and I heard Look Away by, by Chicago, I, I didn't even know that was there until I came, until I got Greatest Hits 82 through 89. I didn't even know that that was them. I thought it was like 38 Special or somebody like that. I had no idea. It just sounded yeah. like another kind of generic power ballad band from the 80s to me. Well, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons that particular album is one of my least favorite in their catalog. It's because there's, even as well produced as it was, there it lacks character. It's it is completely generic. And most of the songs on it are completely generic. There are a few instances here and there where they snuck in the horns, and you can re- you're reminded it's still Chicago, but they're few and far between on that album. It's probably why it's one of my least least favorite as well. Yeah, of theirs. I mean, I'll. I'll listen to some of their more contemporary stuff before I'll listen to 36 before I'll listen to 19, to be honest with you. And, and that's, uh, (laughs) it's kind of an indictment on, on that. Maybe you're right, Ron, maybe Nevison learned his lesson. He's like, let's let the band breathe a little bit more on 21. And, and it did. And if you listen to the, like we've been talking about the alternate mix, mix, you, you, he let the songs breathe a lot more. It was a lot less compression. It was just kind of an open, didn't bury, uh, a lot of the instruments in there, um, the horns kind of were more front. 
It was almost it was pr- almost like it was produced like a Steely Dan album that because because of the space you could feel in the songs. Yeah. I mean, they don't sound anything like Steely Dan, but it's that whole. I mean, you listen to a Steely Dan album. There's a lot of space in there, and the songs really breathe. And I think Nevison really brought that into Chicago Twenty One. Well, and that's a great point about Steely Dan. I think a lot of that has to do with their their you know the production, like you said, but also the the musicianship of Steely Dan. And I would put any of Chicago's musicianship with Steely Dan's. I would. Um, Robert Lamb and and Hank Allen them could write. Is as complex a song as you would find on a Steely Dan album. It was just a different approach to it. Yeah. But but I'm just you know I, I start to think on, on on Steely Dan you know the different time signatures the the space in the songs um, the intentionality of the approach that they took to it. That's what I think always stood them apart to me of, of really any other band. And then the early Chicago albums you definitely heard you, you heard right. that. Well, in, in fairness to even the 80s version, I mean, David Foster, uh, say what you will about songs like You're the Inspiration, um, for example, that had multiple time signature changes and key changes. That wasn't normal for a pop song in the 80s to change keys and change time signatures back and forth. So it might sound simple, but there was a lot going on in that song. I, I had the sheet music book for 17, and looking through it, I was actually very impressed at the level of complexity in a lot of those songs and David Foster had a way of taking taking that sound and making it sound like it was flawless and easy and looking at the sheet music there's nothing easy about that material <laughs> no and and you know and as much as David Foster has his flaws as a human being um <laughs> according to According to the people that have worked with him, um, you know, Steve Lukather in his book talked about it. Danny Seraphine in his book talked about it. Yeah. He, he was a, he brought, he did get the most out of the musicians that he was working with and, and his, his craft, the way he crafts his songs. Um, I mean, there's not, there are very few people that do it better than he does. Yeah. I, I definitely can't argue that. I mean, there was, I grew up on the Canadian border, New York Quebec border. So, got all the, all the good radio stations I got because I was north of the Adirondack Mountains. So I had all this iron ore blocking any signals from south of me. So all the good music was coming from the north in Canada. And in Canada, they have to play a certain number of Canadian-born or Canadian citizen artists for every non-Canadian they play. I think it's like a six-to-one ratio. It could that may have changed, but for every not six non-Canadians, I have to play at least one Canadian song. And around 1993 or so, there was a song, and the singer was, he was Acadian, so from the Maritimes, but he did songs in English and in Acadian French. His name was uh, Roche Placine, and he had this hit in Canada, never released in the States, called I'll, I'll Always Be There, and I was listening to it, and I said, that sounds like Foster. Something, and sure enough, I eventually found the credits to it, and yeah, Foster co-wrote it, and I think he played keyboards on it too. So <laughs> he definitely has a distinct sound. I, yes, uh, he's a uh, he's an interesting individual. If you ever seen some of his interviews where he talks about, well, I'm 
You know, he's 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 he knows he's good. I think yeah. is I think is what it comes across as. Yeah. Yeah, he, he certainly does, and he he's not afraid to remind people of that. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so, um, m- moving on a little, we uh, the uh, Rolling Stone magazine recently updated their top 500 albums of all time. I think it, for the first time since like 2003. So I'd argue that long overdue. I mean, it's something I'd, I'd argue might need to be done every 10 years of reevaluation of that list. But there, there were definitely some surprises there. Some of which I agreed with some of which I didn't, for example, Sergeant Pepper's dropping out, dropping as far as it did. I've always thought that album was overrated. Yeah. And the fact that Abbey road jumped so high in the list, I also appreciated because that is my favorite Beatles album. If there's any Beatles album that should be in that top 10, I I really think it should be Abbey Road, not Sgt. Pepper's, not Revolver, not Rubber Soul. There's just something that, I know it's there's a sense of finality because it was their last released album, even if it wasn't their last recorded. But it, there's just so much going on on that album, and it, it never gets old for me. And there's a timelessness to it. Some of their other music sounds dated. To me, Sgt. Pepper's, a lot of it does sound dated, and I don't get that from Abbey Road at all. Now, Abbey Road is one of those that also has a a special place in my heart. Um, that was my 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 mom who passed on when I was nineteen. That was her favorite Beatles album. And you want to talk about a Beatles fan? Like my Beatles appreciation definitely comes from her. Um, but it 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 was <laughs> as a kid, like five years old. You know, I'm hearing you know Mean Mr. Mustard, and then kind of you know singing around and beating on things like with, you know, with a hammer because, you know, Maxwell Silver Hammer. I mean, all that stuff that kind of went along with it, not knowing, you know, what it what it all meant. You know, I, I've i always found Abbey Road to be fascinating. And it's actually my daughter's or my 15 year old daughter's favorite Beatles album as well. She uh, that's the only Beatle album she has on vinyl um, and she has a vinyl collection. But uh, she uh, she loves that album. And it was weird because it was that was a very contentious time for them too and the uh and john lennon really didn't even like it uh from my understanding was that he he thought it sounded thin that they didn't sound like uh beatles but you know i think over the years they did tend to um get a little bit more uh fond, grow fond of it yeah and as the as it moved on but yeah i'm i'm any any top 10 list that has abbey road in it will will Definitely not get any sort of criticism for from me, at least on that. And right. there's some others on this list that you may get some criticism for from me, but yeah. that's not one of them. <laughs> the other one I definitely agree with is uh, Beach Boys Pet Sounds. I mean, we were just talking about how great David Foster is a producer, but get out of the way, Foster, because Brian Wilson was it. I mean, he's, as far as studio genius I think he blew away the Beatles even in George Martin. There were, he, there's a level of genius to his production. Even if you're not necessarily a fan of the Beatles music, Brian Wilson's production was absolutely brilliant, especially on that album. And it's just, that's easily my favorite Beach Boys album. I mean, I, I don't think there's many arguments that that was the best Beatles album and the only one that, uh, Beach Boys album, the only one that might have ended up being better was, would have been Smile, which, Brian Wilson eventually did release in 2004 his own version of, but 
Um, if it had been released back then, that that might be the only album of theirs that might have been able to surpass the brilliance of uh, Pet Sounds. Well, Pet Sounds, I think, also, it it, it showed that you could, you know, and along with Sgt. Peppers, this is where, you know, we talked about Sgt. Peppers maybe being a little overrated on that, and, and, and I'm not... I would not disagree with you on it, but I think you have to, when you couple it with Pet Sounds, it's sort of, it took production in a new direction um, that really hadn't been accomplished. I mean, Brian Wilson, he was kind of like the mad genius, right? And yeah. and he sort of sat there and he, he got his little pot of uh, music and sounds and tapes. And, you know, he was like, he would simultaneously take tape and play it backwards at the same time he's playing one four and he'd pitch it up and, and move it just to see what it would do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I might be in the minority here, but my favorite Beach Boys solo album of all the Beach Boys is actually Dennis Wilson's Pacific Ocean Blue. He was, I think he was vastly underrated and he was per, second only to his brother in production. It, it's a shame that the rest of the Beach Boys didn't realize the level of talent he had and just kind of it just kind of wrote him off as a surfer bum who, and to the extent that they didn't even really have him drumming on a lot of those albums. They brought in session cats for a lot of the drumming and yeah, sure. He drummed, he did the drumming live, but the albums, I don't think he got the level of respect and maybe arguably, I don't know enough about his drumming to really say it. Maybe he wasn't the best drummer, but he had the, he had that voice that was distinctly different than Brian or Dennis, uh, Brian or Carl. I mean, it was gruff. It was almost like Terry Kath of Chicago. It was a deeper, gruffer voice. And it, I think if the Beach Boys had realized that sooner, I mean, I think the songs he did sing for them had a lot of character. They they gave the Beach Boys album some variety. I mean, Forever is absolutely gorgeous song. I'd, I'd say it's equal to just about anything on Pet Sounds. Unfortunately, the rest of that album doesn't quite hold up as well as Forever. I I, I forget which album that is, uh, Sunshine or Sunflower or something like that. Mm-hmm. But Dennis's Pacific Ocean Blue, I think he learned a lot from Brian because I hear a lot of the same characteristics in his production because I'm pretty sure he self-produced that album. I hear a lot of similarities between he and Brian in the production style. Well, I always thought Dennis Wilson was was definitely underutilized, and I thought he was a lot more versatile than people gave him credit for. I've got kind of a funny funny story. I was uh, fishing with my dad, and he he grew up in San Diego, um, same as me, and he was one of those surfer guys. Um, went to go see the the surf movies with um, you know, Bruce Brown and Endless Summer, those types of movies, and <laughs> he told me that one time the Beach Boys. Um, opened up for the for the movie of the night at the Roxy Theater in Pacific Beach, California, and he said they got booed off the stage, and they were a new like they were kind of like a new on the scene. And he said, well, you know, the surfer dudes didn't really didn't really like that kind of music. They like Dick Dale and the Ventures and stuff like that. Um, they kind of thought they were kind of hokey, um, but. It turned out, you know, Dennis Wilson was the only one that really surfed um, right. when, they, when they started. So, um, you know, that kind of <laughs> I just thought that was an interesting story to hear to hear from my dad, who was actually there for that um, during that time. You know, he, he likes them a lot more now. But at the time, you know, it's like, oh, the, well, the cool surfers, the real surfers, they listen to the Ventures and Dick Dale. 
and yeah. not Jan and Dean and, and the Beach Boys. Um, but, you know, I, I look at that, too. I look back in my, you know, 1993, like, ah, nobody wants to listen to that, you know, garbage over there. I'm, you know, Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and stuff like that. And then here I am listening to, like, you know, In My Dreams by REO Speedwagon sometimes. And I'm just like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. So, you know, you change as you get, <laughs> as you move forward in in life, you get yeah. more perspective. But uh, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. And a lot of pop music, unfortunately, does get written off. And, and there is some real genius in a lot of it. And I've got to say, if not for if not for Chicago's 80s material, I don't know that I ever would have stumbled upon their far superior 60s and 70s material. I needed, it, it was the, that's what, the 80s material is what hooked me. The 70s and 60s material is what kept me coming back for more and more and more. If it, if she, if Chicago had started in the 80s and their catalog had been 16, 17, 18, and 19, I don't know that I'd still be listening to them today. I don't know that they would have, They've pretty much been the soundtrack of my life. And because, heck, the week I was born, the number one song in the world was If You Leave Me Now. So it was almost written in the stars that they were going to end up being one of my favorite bands and being such an inter- integral part of my life. Um, but a lot of pop music, uh, Beach Boys, Ch- Chicago, REO, Journey, it gets written off, and it's fun. It's gateway music. It, it's You need to... As you mature, you start to appreciate music more and more. You hear things you didn't when you were younger. And you need, I think pop music draws you in. It creates a love of music. And I think far too many people are too quick to write it off. They get snobbish about it. And it's, there's no reason for that. It's, there's a time and place for it. And there's a time and place for the stuff that's more complex and deeper. I, I completely agree with that. You know, and, and I didn't realize that, you know, what it took for me was, having to sit down and, and like start to write songs. And then when you try to write songs, you're like, well, I'm just going to write, you know, this is easy. This is, that's trashy, catchy, you know, pop trash or whatever. But when you start to write it, it's a lot harder to come up with something that's catchy and that is, becomes an earworm on there. And even though it seems like, you know, I think a Kylie Minogue, na, 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 na. Well, it's one, you know, one sound and it's a big giant giant hit, but it's still it's hard. It's yeah. hard, and it's hard to do it well for a long time. And that's the thing I always I kind of admired about like Chicago Journey is another one of those that it's like how do you keep doing that album after album after album where you're coming up with these songs that you know that don't stop believing. I, you know, I'm playing an '80s band, and you know the, the the night can be going terrible. I could be in a biker bar playing. You know, to people that aren't paying attention. And if I start playing Don't Stop Believing, if we start playing Don't Stop Believing, everybody all of a sudden becomes, you know, a city boy, um, it, it, and a lonely girl, and they're up there singing and dancing. It's the funniest thing. That's why we always end the night with it. But, you know, just being able to do that is, is a lot harder. And I think, you know, like you said, if, if you write it off, you're missing kind of the the art to it. And you're right. There's... I mean, we start to get if we start to talk about like prog music, that was like the the antithesis of pop, right? We're gonna, and then it became so pretentious that some people just like that's kind of why it fell out of favor. Yeah. So, I mean, one of my other favorite bands, and 
admittedly, I don't listen to their 80s material much, is Genesis. And my two of my three favorite albums of theirs are af- right after Peter Gabriel left and before Steve Hackett left. Because um, I found the Peter Gabriel material, like you said, far too pretentious. And after he left, I think Rutherford and Banks and Collins and Hackett scaled down the pretension a bit. They, they're still very complex prog songs, but they lack that Peter Gabriel pretent- pretension, which really saw its zenith with The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is just over-the-top pretension. I, I don't <laughs> think I've ever listened to that album. I might have listened to two or three songs from it, but I just can't stomach it because it is utterly pretentious in, in my to my ears. And oddly enough, the album right before, Selling England by the Pound, is my other favorite Genesis album. It, it is the but as far as I'm concerned, it's the best album Peter Gabriel did with the band. And then I think his ego got built up to the extent that Lamb Lies Down on Broadway just was just too over the top. Yeah, I, I, you, you would get no disagreement from me on that at all. Uh, I, the first time I heard uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, it was, of course, the song. And I, I, thought it was, I thought it was interesting the first time I heard it. But it's one of those things that, you know, as I listen to some of these Chicago or, or Journey or whatever, you know, these songs as they go on, I, I appreciate them a little bit more. That song, I appreciate a little bit less every time I hear it. And... <laughs> and you know it's like seven and nine minutes i don't know it's like a whole side it's 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 long and it goes through the the whole thing where it sounds like yeah okay this is cool kind of proc progressive and then it has the part where everybody's just mopey and sitting there and then and then it picks up again and i think that's that whole side but um yeah it's just kind of over the top on that yeah. and whereas selling England by the pound i first of fifth I can probably count on one hand the number of times music has literally caused the hair on the back of my neck to stand up. And Steve Hackett's guitar solo on First of Fifth is one of those times. I may love Terry Kath. I may think he's one of the best guitarists in Chicago, speaking of Chicago. But honestly, he never gave me the chills. He's more, he might be more consistently good, but Steve Hackett was the first and so far only guitarist to really have that effect on me where and and that's why he's probably one of my favorite living guitarists because he has that effect on me and he, his music is kind of hit or miss with me he he tries to dabble and has dabbled a lot since he left genesis but that one guitar solo there's nothing quite like it in the way peter gabriel has that flute solo right before and the guitar solo kind of mirrors it, it it's the same theme and then he just takes it to a different level. And the, his, the tone on his guitar is just so beautiful. And to me, that I think that is, if not the best Genesis song, at least one of them. It's in the top five easily. Well, you know, we, we were looking at some of these others yeah. on here. And, and I, I, you know, I almost want to start at 10. I mean, I was pretty excited when I, when I saw the whole top 500 of and I saw that uh, Harry Styles' new album was on there, or his latest. Uh, so that was exciting for me, along with Miranda Lambert. But but no Chicago, not anywhere. Yeah, that that what bothers me about that is just about every other artist who's on there deserves to be on there. I'm not going to argue that. But there's some artists who have two or three or four albums on there, 
one of those out one of those spots could easily be replaced with a Chicago album. Bob Dylan doesn't need four albums on there. I think, and I think he doesn't. And one of them, one of his more recent albums, his best stuff is his early stuff. I mean, Blonde on Blonde, uh, Highway 61 Revisited, and I'm happy that Blood on the Tracks is the one that did crack the top ten because I'm not a big Bob Dylan fan, but if I listen to Dylan, that is the album I will go to. I mean, it's a brilliant album. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree with you on that. Um, I think, I think for me, when I, when I look at some of these, um, it, you know, we look at the top 10 and it, and it, and, you know, we go kind of go down there. Bob Dylan, like you said, number nine, Princess Purple Rain. Uh, and I guess I should probably preface the whole album thing as they went back and they started from zero. I guess in previous ones, they had sort of just sort of revised it over time. This is one that this top 500 was one that they just did from zero. And started all over. And so the you know, Prince moves up like, I don't know, 60-something positions to get into the top 10 with Purple Rain, which isn't even my favorite Prince album, but it's it's good. Like, I mean, yeah. it's <laughs> and it's definitely, um, you know, one of those things from the 80s. Like, it's it's a definitely a, a kind of a marker from the 80s for for people to say, oh, well, that's, that's a cool. quintessential album of the 80s. And I I think that's why it jumps so far is is through the prism of time. I mean, when you're in the moment, you don't necessarily know which song, which albums are going to stand the test of time, which are which ones are going to be the definitive or the pivotal albums of a given era. You need the lens of you need to put some distance between the music. It, it's kind of like what's presidents you, they it's not fair to judge them right after they leave office you can they're they tend to be judged more fairly 10 20 30 years because sometimes the effects of what they did in office don't show up for that long the music's very similar in that regard and i think the reason prince did jump that far is purple rain has stood the test of time it, there's a lot of stuff from the 80s that is forgotten it and rightly so because it wasn't that complex it wasn't that good it was cookie cutter it was dime a dozen and the cream will rise to the top and history is the best barometer of that if if it stands the test of time it deserves to be on the list and purple rain definitely falls into that category yeah i i i, I enjoy listening to purple rain and and i, I i'm just you know i i for Prince, for me, his is 1999 Little Red Corvette, Raspberry Beret. You know, some of those, some of those ones are are just to me Prince. Yeah. And, and I remember when Prince died, and everybody was <laughs> everybody was playing Purple Rain. Um, even David Gilmore from Pink Floyd did a did a Purple Rain one, and yeah, it was kind of like. Was that the only song that he did? So it was kind of, I was kind of seeing, wanted to see some tributes from some of the other ones, but you know, it, it was a tremendous loss. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think about just all the, all the people that he inspired. And I think he was really one of those, as a guitarist, he was completely underrated. And you have to see when he played, uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Um, there's a, when he played that at, uh, one of those all-star ensemble concerts. Um, I think it was for Bangladesh or something, but uh, no, it was the George Harrison tribute and he just goes off and you're watching this and you're going, man, I guess I never realized 
because he because it wasn't front and center in his music. Like it wasn't he was more than just like a guitar player. He was everything. And so some of those albums he was everything. Right. I mean the to me, I I was never big into Prince, but I remember the early nineties when he it wasn't the revolution anymore, it was a new power generation. The songs for Princess to get for me are like Diamonds and Pearls and Seven especially. I think my favorite Prince song is actually Seven. There's just something about it. Just, it caught my ear more so than any of his other material. Over time, the stuff from Purple Rain has risen to the top of it. To catch my ear right away, Seven was really the only Prince song that did that. I only came to appreciate the stuff from Purple Rain later on because... I mean, when you listen to 80s music, Purple Rain is, is just about everything from that album is a staple of that decade. Yeah, and, and I think that was his high point of their, but it, it definitely wasn't a high point in, in in his music because, you know, later on, I, I'm i still a big fan of The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. I, I, that one to me is uh, just a really great song, like a really nice, you know, introspective or not. Well, I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. But uh, but it's a very nice song, and, yeah. and I think and I think it's it just shows the versatility that he that he had in there. I mean, he could be funk, he could be rock, he could be pop. Um, so even if you're not like a huge fan, like even if you sit there and you go, hey, let's let's list out my top five um, artists of all time. If if he's not on there, that's okay. I think it's just you still have that that appreciation of it. Lenny Kravitz yeah. is a lot like that. Yeah, um, where where he just incredibly talented, um, but he, you know, all over the place, genres, genre-wise, rock, pop, funk, doesn't matter. And there's the thing I liked about Lenny, or like about Lenny, is that he he knows how to tap into the sounds of previous generations, and I mean. It ain't over till it's over. Just that's a gorgeous song, but it sounds like it could have been recorded in the seventies, and and yet it also sounds like it was current for the era it was recorded in, because late eighties, early nineties. Um, there's a timelessness to that song because even though it was recorded when it was, it sounds like it was recorded well before, and it's held up as a result. There's he he captured that sound, but he modernized it to the extent where it has held up as well as it has going to go my way. Oh yeah. That when I first too. heard that, I'm like, you, you just went from like a Motown on, on any over till it's over to, and that's like a, like a, you're kind of channeling a Jimi Hendrix almost in some yeah. ways. And by the way, great guitar, like the, the, the guitar solos on that album, are you going to go my way? Uh, by Craig Ross are uh, incredible. Um, believe as a guitar solo on the outro that uh, that that guy plays just amazingly, uh, and and so that's when I first sort of discovered that hey, rock isn't dead. When I was a kid, because I listened to a lot of classic rock back in the in the eighties <laughs> and nineties, and that was that album came out, and I said and I said oh, hey, so there is people out there that still can rock. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he. Um, it's funny, I was, I think it's the Disney movie Planes, there's, the theme song from that is called Fly, 
And it sounds like a Lenny Kravitz song. It sounds like it could have been from Are You Gonna Go My Way. It's, it's got that very, very similar vibe. And it's from an Australian, Kiwi Australian musician called John Stevens. He was the lead singer of a band called Noiseworks, uh, back in the eighties. And it's, it's like he's channeling Lenny. It is uncanny how much he sounds like Lenny Kravitz. And he was a good friend with Michael Hutchins to the extent where um, before they did that rock star in excess in the early 2000s was a song called Fly, and it was by the singer named John Stevens. He's Kiwi Australian. I think he was born in New Zealand. He's a singer of um, Noise Australia, late 80s. Um, And I saw an interview clip with him, and he and his band was recording their album at the same time in excess was recording kick. I think. Now, hold on. You're going to break up. And he said, sure enough, we broke up in excess is still around. So they were right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he, after Michael Hutchins died and before they did rock star in excess, uh, John Stevens did do some gigs within excess as a vocalist, he, he sang a lot of the Michael Hutchins material, and there's YouTube clips of him um, singing, like, Don't Change, uh, Devil Inside, a handful of other really good in excess songs, but also very versatile, and it's funny to hear him channeling Lenny Kravitz on that fly song from Planes, and then turning around and covering Michael Hutchins with in excess, and being able to do both very well, and sound like he was made to do either or very well. Well, and you did you did a really good job of breaking up during explaining in excess kick and John Stevens. So that was a good example of it <laughs> as we as we move forward. This is the the wonderful part of technology. Um, as we move forward on this, well, of course, we'll get these these bugs worked out. Yeah. But but uh, you know, it, it's. I, I, I I don't want to like leave out some of these ones on this list here. Um, right. I also, I, I I guess you know if, like, if we kind of channel it back to Chicago. And by the way, I'm a big NXS fan, and I know you are a big fan of Oceana music. Oh yeah. Um, so as we as we move forward in this, we'll uh, may hopefully be able to expose some of the the listeners to some some stuff that they may not have heard before, and maybe put some clips or something on on here um, without having to pay royalties. There's a so way to do that. So we'll we'll do that, and you know maybe turn on some people to some new music that they may not may not have heard. Um, um, yeah, going on to the next uh, after Popcorn uh, Fleetwood Mac rumors popped in at seven, and that's almost a no brainer. I mean, if yeah. you're going to put any Fleetwood Mac on the list, it has to be rumors. Just I mean, it was a juggernaut. It is. It's one of those, it is to the 70s what Purple Rain is to the 80s. I mean, it it is one of those definitive albums. In fact, I, I can only think of maybe two or three other albums that are more of that era definitively than Rumors that I either didn't make the list or aren't near as high on the list. Like uh, Todd Rundgren's uh, Something Anything I'd put on as a definitive 70s album. And, of course, Frampton Comes Alive would be the other one. So those three, I think, are like the bread and butter of that era. And Oh, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. I mean, if you have any albums that really define the 70s, that's it. I mean, they are the sound of that era. 
Oh yeah, I, I would. I, there's no doubt about it. And you know, the Saturday Night Fever. But, I mean, that was another one that my mom and I, um, when she'd listen to albums, it would be Abbey Road. It would be Ride Like the Wind by Christopher Cross, and because she chased me around the house doing it, and then, and then Saturday Night Fever, and I'm. <laughs> I mean, I, even when I listen to that now, we talk about soundtrack of your life. More than a woman um, is is probably one of the best songs of any era to me. And just the the fact that they were able to just, I mean, strike gold on that entire soundtrack. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, I mean, un, un, unbelievable. Uh, and even just, the stuff that, like Yvonne Elliman, uh, if I can't have you, I mean, that was BG's written song, right? And they did right by giving it to her. I've heard the Bee Gees version, and it's nowhere near as good as the version she did. I mean, she knocked it out of the park. I mean, that's probably my favorite song from that soundtrack, even more so than the Bee Gees material, because it's there's just something about it that hits me like a ton of bricks every time I listen to it. I love that. And, and you know, Samantha Sang has one, um, Emotions, which is also another Bee Gees song. It's not on that album, but... Um, it's, it's another great song from that era. I mean, their fingerprints are all over the, the seventies, especially yeah. the mid to late seventies. And, and just, I mean, and, and then, then the work done with Barbara Streisand and I just, that's another one of those. And, you know, and the weird thing is like we were talking about earlier about kind of bands being able to do this over and over and over for a long period of time. They were one of them that completely reinvented themselves compared to, I mean, they were already a popular band. And people thought they were on their way out before yeah. that, before that album. And then they reinvented themselves again and they kind of stuck around for a little bit. And I love the stuff they did with Andy too, their younger brother. I mean, some of his stuff with them doing the background, like Desire, um, mm-hmm. beautiful song. And uh, I actually like his stuff more than the Bee Gees. Um, is I don't his voice is a little lower than theirs, but still very high. <laughs> right, it's low for BG standards, but it it's certainly higher than I can sing. And I mean, Desire um, is is always one that first pops to my mind because they sang backup on that one. Um, there's Love is thicker than water. There's just something about him that he took. It's very similar style, but he took it in a slightly different direction. And unfortunately, he, the music industry killed him, I'd say, because it, yeah. he took cocaine to try to keep up with it. And it, that's why he died of a heart attack at age 30. I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate, but I think he was very underrated. He had a great voice and he was kind of overshadowed by his older brothers. And, and they were going to bring him on. Too. Yeah, that, and he that. opted out. I mean, he he didn't want to. He wanted to be his own man, and I I kind of respect him for that. And he had him step in when he thought it would add to the music, but he distanced himself as well. I mean, he didn't think that that style was necessary for all of his material, but when it was, he was happy to bring his brothers into the mix. And when they were, it was golden, beautiful harmonies. It can't be beat. No, I, that's, that's definitely one of those, um, you know, families that just like the Porcaros that are just oozing with this ability. Like it's just in their DNA yeah, and, absolutely. and it's, it's just incredible to, to have to been able to have that. And, 
you know, all of them, you know, three quarters of them taken way too early. Um, so unfortunately, but yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, looking down, down on this list a little bit, a little bit more, um, we've got Nirvana number six, uh, never mind. And I think for me, I did not like Nirvana in the nineties. Now I liked, I liked grunge. I was okay with that. I, I, I liked Soundgarden. I liked Pearl Jam. I liked, there was something about Nirvana that I didn't like then. I appreciate it more now. And I yeah. think I can appreciate the album for what it did. Maybe not what was on it, because I thought that some of the other, like, their, their next album was was better overall musically. But what it did for transitioning, you know, into a whole new era of music, I, I think that can't be understated right. uh, in this case. No, I, I couldn't agree more. What I'm... Admittedly, I'm not a Nirvana fan, but I appreciate their impact. I, I do like the song Come As You Are, but that's about the only song there's I can really latch on to at all. For grunge, I was I didn't get really into any of it until later on, and even the little I have gotten into was Mother Love Bone, the precursor to Pearl Jam. Right. There's uh, Andrew Wood had that music in a very different style than Eddie Vedder took it when he stepped in after Temple of the Dog with Chris Cornell. Um, but Andrew Wood just, there's just something about it and it's really unfortunate he died when he did because I think Mother, Mother Lovebone would have been a juggernaut had he not passed away. I mean, it's great that they were able to find Eddie and Pearl Jam was able to pick up that torch and take that to a different level. But there was definitely a shift in the style when Eddie Vedder came on versus when Andrew Wood was singing. Yeah, and, and that Temple of the Dog uh, album, I, I was actually listening to uh, Hunger Strike the other day. It, it's something that right now, the lyrics of that, um, I think are very poignant to kind of the the, the, you know, the, area, the era that we're existing in right now. Um, and the kind of the sociological uh, changes and and issues that are going on right now. I mean, I, I don't mind taking bread from the mouths of decadence. I mean, I, stuff like that. That's very, uh, I think it's very poignant to 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 right right now in everyday people's lives. Yeah, it's there are some songs that are almost prescient that they're, and it's almost sad because there's. They're of the era they were recorded in, but they're almost more pertinent now than when they were first recorded, which tells you things haven't really changed enough. The, the fact that some of these songs that were speaking of social ills back then are even more pertinent now than then means, to me, a backslide than, rather than a move forward. And that kind of makes me sad when I think of it that way. Um, another one that's very similar in that regard where lyrically it, it's, it is, as far as I'm concerned, a Generation X anthem because of the lyrics. It, it, I mean, there's nothing more Gen X about the lyrics, uh, but the song Goodness Gracious by Kevin Gilbert, I don't know if you ever got into him. Um, he passed away much too young. He was, I think, a very similar way to how Michael Hutchins died. Um, but he was scheduled to fly to England to audition to replace Phil Collins in Genesis for the Calling All Stations album that they ended up recording. And 
he died the week before he was scheduled to fly out there to do that. And he was a huge Genesis fan. He, I think he did the entire, uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway album himself at one point. It, he, so he would have been a great fit, but he recorded the song 1995 on, he released an album called Thud. And I, I listened to the whole album. I like, like it here and there, but, the song Goodness Gracious is the one I keep coming back to because even more so than Nirvana, Pearl Jam, there's something about him that he, he, he brilliant lyricist and he wrote most of, uh, the Tuesday Night Music Club album for Cheryl Crow and mm. she barely gave him credit that caused a huge falling out. But a lot of the music, a lot of the songs on there, he had written the lyrics to. He, brilliant lyricist. Um, and I highly recommend checking out that, that album because it, Lyrically, it's brilliant, start to finish. Musically, some of it doesn't really resonate with me. Goodness gracious always hits a nerve with me. It's one of the few songs my wife absolutely loves that I also love. She and I have very different tastes, but that's one we actually agree on. And if you only listen to that song by him, it, it's well worth adding to any collection. Well, let's make sure we put that up on the uh, on the Facebook page, too, for people if they want to go and yeah, check, I'll, out, I'll, check that out. I'll yeah. add that to uh, our Spotify uh, playlist for this particular episode. Yeah, because I think that we can add hunger strike too. I mean, because I I do think you made an excellent point. I mean, bo- both songs are very pertinent today. Uh, one of the lyrics to, from Goodness Gracious is, "We were the cleanup crew for parties we were too young to attend." <laughs> and that's 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 a that's a millennial mantra. Right now, is that? Oh uh, yeah, but it was for us too. I mean, Gen- right. Generation X. Uh, there are a lot of similarities as to our attitude. It's just our approach to it. The Gen X approach and the millennial approaches are very different, but a lot of our sentiments are very similar. I think. I Nevermind was definitely the album for that, though. I mean, it, I mean, say what you will about Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and everything. They were all excellent, but I don't think any of them would have been as popular as they ended up being if not for Nevermind. It, it opened that door. Heck, it kicked that door wide open to allow those bands to really breathe and grow and become as successful as they became. I think you take Nevermind out of that equation, and maybe those bands would have had some success, but I don't think it would have been on the level they ended up having it. No, I think it probably would have maintained regional appeal um like they had i think what nevermind did too is it it told record executives that look this is this is marketable this is this can people are going to buy this type of music and that that opened the floodgates like you said for for soundgarden for pearl jam for any of those and and later stone devil pilots coming out of san diego but it it really really kind of made it a viable genre of of music and it 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 can't be understated how how kind of important it was to to that and to a lot of people and you know, you know I remember at the time when Kurt Cobain died and they were like well this was the John Lennon of our generation and I kind of mocked it at the time to be honest with you but I'm like well come on but you know again as you say as you distance yourself from it you sort of start to see the the other parts kind of bubble to the surface and understand that 
he was speaking for a generation, and I don't think people were talking about, well, I know they weren't talking about musically. They were talking about in, in the lyrics and the way it made you feel. And it was a voice to the people who didn't think they had a voice. And, and very similar to kind of what, what John Lennon was, was to the 70s and 1980. Yeah. Yeah. They, I was much the same way. I, I kind of mocked that whole, he is the Lennon of our, of our generation, that kind of thing. Because I, at the time, I did not like grunge. Heck, I, I had a college radio show uh, when I was a freshman, and my my whole thing was I was referring I was a freshman in college in ninety five ninety six. I was referring to it as nineteen eighty fifteen and nineteen eighty sixteen because I <laughs> I was skipping the whole early nineties because I didn't I disliked grunge that much at the time. I've grown to like it over time, at least some of it, but back then I didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, and I made a point of tiptoeing or stepping wide angle around it and pretending the 80s had perpetuated into the mid-90s. And then after grunge just kind of phased out and that mid to late 90s sound kind of started to establish itself, I did latch onto that. I like the whole ska new swing movement with like Mighty Mighty Boston's and uh, Real Big Fish and Cherry Pop and Daddies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Cherry Pop and Daddies and uh, Royal Crown Review. And I I got into that because of the horns. I mean, being a Chicago fan, how can you not get into stuff like that has the brass? And well, with Mighty Mighty Boston's, I can understand why Chicago fans wouldn't get into them because Dickie Barrett's voice is not for everyone's liking and you certainly know Peter Cetera. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, they've, as time has passed, I understand and appreciate, even if I still don't necessarily care for them myself, myself, I, I respect the impact Nirvana had, and I, re- I can't disagree with Nevermind making it to the top 10 on this list. It, it makes sense. And then after Nirvana, we've, we've, we talked about Abbey Road. That yeah. pulls in there at number five. And then Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Number four. Stevie Wonder. I mean, another, I mean, multi talented musical genius. I mean, he, he had his hands in so many lives. I think the trouble with Stevie, why he might not have ranked as high in the list on previous lists, is I think. Similar to Chicago, his 80s music kind of tarnished his reputation some. It tarnished his legacy. Is The Songs in the Cave of Life is a brilliant, beautiful album. And then I just called to say I love you in the 80s. It was, it was very simplistic as compared to anything from Songs in the Cave of Life. And I think that really hurt his legacy at the time. But as time has passed, and that music is, I'd argue, has largely been forgotten Songs in the Cave Life has not, and it's risen to the top, and it's made people forget the low points in his career. So I'm I'm glad that he's made it onto the list where he has. Yeah, it was one of those I I had actually had to go and and re-listen to that one, and then I'm I'm just sitting there and I'm I'm listening to the songs, and I'm and I'm going, man, there's it's just like one right after the other, and. And I'm looking, listening. I'm like, I wish I love that song, and 
and then Isn't She Lovely, which I never, like, it wasn't one that stood out to me over time, but as I, as I listened to it in the context of the album, I'm kind of like, wow, that, that's, that's really good, really good song, and I think it, it's, now I kind of think of that as, a, as Stevie Wonder. When I think of Stevie Wonder, that's the one that I think of. Sunshine of Your Life, or, um, you know, that's another one, but, and that's not the name of it, but I can't remember. <laughs> remember well, some, yeah, but you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, the, it was just, it was such a great album from uh, start to finish. I I don't own a copy, never have. I did have, I think it was one of his greatest hits collections, the original Musiquarium on cassette back in the 90s. And I let my brother and sister-in-law borrow it and they never get back and I honestly don't care knowing the reason why they they had a son who had born with Down syndrome and a congenital heart disease he died at 18 months and my sister-in-law used to listen to that with him so there was an emotional attachment and I there's no way I could ask for the album back after that I mean the source keep you have an emotional attachment that I will never have to that music because of what happened. So, and, and, you know, and that, that ties back in again with what we were talking about on, on the soundtracks of our life. Now, now to that, to that person, that's now, that's part of the soundtrack, good or bad. It is, it is part of that soundtrack. So every time you hear that, it, it elicits that it's like a, it's like a time machine that takes yeah. you back to what was going on at that time. I, you know, I talked about Saturday Night Fever, Ride Like the Wind. You know, I'm talked, I'm, t- I'm taken back to my mom chasing me around the house when I listen to, um, Play Something Sweet by Three Dog Night, Brickyard Blues. Um, that brings me back to getting ready for a date in high school with my high school sweetheart. It's, it, and I put together at one time a whole bunch of, like, I had like three volumes of all of these, uh, songs. And you listen to it and it's like, Oh, I remember exactly where I was when that song happened. So it's like you're, it's like a, it's like a memory book. It's like a photo album. Um, it, where you, and you, that emotion, you know, when people will cry and they'll, they'll laugh and they'll remember just based on three to five minutes of, of music. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. Uh, yeah, it certainly is. Uh, it's, I mean, that, the one for me that always takes me back is The Stranger by Billy Joel. My earliest, one of my earliest memories, I was probably about two. Um, my sister's bedroom was right next door to mine. My eldest sister was, had moved out. She was already in college, but my, the younger, my two older sisters was still in high school. I was two years old. She was 14 years older than I was. Um, she had The Stranger on 8-track. And that cover art with him in black and white laying on the bed, looking at that mask. Um, there's something that image spoke to me even more than the music. That album cover, just there's something about it that even at two years old, it really spoke to me for some reason. And I, I, that, I feel bad for my sister in hindsight. Cause I would barrage her with questions. Why is he looking at the mask? Whose mask is it? Why is it there? Where, I was trying to find the significance, and of course, to her teenager, she she got it for the music. I don't. She could have cared less about the cover art. 
and she would play because I'd ask someone any questions about the cover art. She'd play the eight track until one day her eight track player ate the tape and it was gone. Ironically, she moved into a she moved from Syracuse, New York area to Canandaigua, New York, about an hour and a half from Syracuse. And when she moved into her new house, the previous owner had left this dresser, and in one of the dresser drawers was a stack of vinyl albums. And in that stack was The Stranger, and and oddly enough, Chicago 11 was also in that stack. So when my sister moved into that house, Chicago 11 is the first time, is the first full studio of non-greatest hits compilation where I heard Terry Cat. That was my ex- that was my introduction to that era of Chicago. So I got that at the same time I got my reintroduction to Billy Joel's The Stranger. And so it was, and my sister let me keep both those LPs because she said the previous owner left them. I don't care. And I said, he left these two. I, I have no interest in these. So here you go. And she let me keep those two though. Um, and the great records and to the, I'll never forget that experience. I mean, she had a record player in, in her basement and my brother-in-law had already set it up. So I remember popping that Chicago 11 on there, and the first time I heard that laugh from Terry Kath at the beginning of Mississippi Delta City Blues, that stuck with me. I mean, that's that was my in real introduction to that era of Chicago. I'd heard the early stuff on Greatest Hits albums, but 11 was the first non-compilation album, the first Honest God Studio album of Chicago from that era that I heard. So... Always hold a special place in my heart with that album for that reason. That was being my introduction to that era and how I discovered it and the fact that it was kind of tied to my earliest memories because I found it at the same time I found The Stranger, which is my earliest musical memory. Another early memory I have is um, I re- vaguely remember telling one of my cousins that my favorite TV show is Dan's Fever with Denny Terrio. So that's where the BG's come into the mix for me is that that show was basically on the air because of the success of the Saturday Night Fever movie. Um, and I, for some reason, I loved watching the dancing on that as a little kid, and I was probably only two or three years old. Those are my two, my two memories of that era of my life. So that's where the BG's come into the mix, and that's where Billy Joel comes in the mix for me, where I'll always hold a special place in my heart for that kind of stuff because those are early memories. Yeah, it's it's so incredible how that how that happens, um, and it, sometimes it's by chance. Um, that's <laughs> that's how I found like my lifelong you know sort of odd when you think of Chicago, but you know I'm a big Tears for Fears fan, and I really got into them. Because I found my, my, my best friend at the time had the, um, Mad World, um, Pale Shelter and, and, you know, Change, that album. And he, he left the cassette over at my house. I was like, oh, I'll just play with this. And it actually belonged to his sister. Um, and I listened to that and I was like, Change, well, that was the greatest song in the world. And that, at the time, I was really into pop music, like Top 40. I listened to the Top 40 radio station. After that, I became more into like the new wave type yeah. music in the 80s. And it was like all of a sudden now I'm psychedelic furs and 
and you know Duran Duran and and that was just it was like a switch. And oh, absolutely. I mean, I the songs from the Big Chair I think is to is one of those definitive albums, much like we were talking about rumors earlier from the seventies. As far as I'm concerned, Songs from the Big Chair is like the rumors of the 80s. It might not have sold as well, but it had that sound. It really captured that, the spirit of that era in a way that a lot of other music that hasn't stood the test. I mean, Tears for Fears, as far as I'm concerned, have stood the test of time very, very well. And like you were talking about Mad World a second ago, a fantastic song. And I'd, have you seen the movie Donnie Darko where it was covered? Oh, yes. And that version is downright. That's a gut punch of a song. I mean, the gut punch of a cover. I mean, I forget the guy who did it, but he took that song in a completely different and very, very dark direction. I mean, the lyrics already were dark, but it was such a weird juxtaposition on the original version because the lyrics were so dark, but the music was so upbeat and catchy. It's kind of like a Cure song in that regard. I mean, yeah. Right. Dark, dark lyrics and upbeat, peppy music, and it makes such a great juxtaposition. And it, it's Mad World is a brilliant song. And it's my seven-year-old son. It's one of his favorite songs. We're in the car, and it, he asked for Thunderstruck by CDC, Rosanna by Toto, Mad World by Tears for Fears, or, and then there's a handful of current pop songs that he'll ask for. But when he likes those songs. Oh, the latest one is Ride Captain Ride by Blues Image. <laughs> I mean, and my daughter likes that one too. And it just, I have a 70s playlist I put together on Spotify and I've got a Google Assistant. And when you ask Google Assistant to play his playlist on Spotify, it'll play it in the order it's on there unless you tell it to shuffle. And the first song on there is Ride Captain Ride. So when I ask uh, my Google Assistant to play that playlist, Ride Captain Ride is always the first song that plays, and then I'll tell it to shuffle after it plays that song because my kids actually want to hear it all the way through. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's I mean I, I like that song too. I, oh, I've got it's fun, it's catchy, and it's it's weird when you when you have kids and you start to see them kind of pick up on on the thing I was telling you know on these on these songs that. And it's always these songs from from these eras that you wouldn't think that they would be fans of. It, my daughter's really a big fan of vinyl, right? And she's got a bunch of vinyls. Like I said, she has Abbey Road on there, but and she's a big Elton John fan from the seventies. Like that's her favorite, and and it's a lot of it had to do with Rocket Man. But she was already a a fan before that. And you know what did what did she want for for Christmas last year? She wanted tickets to see Poison, Motley Crue, and Jeff Leppard and Joan Joan Jett, of course, the the greatest um, opening act to Def Leppard, Poison, and Motley Crue. But it was uh, it was like wait, wait, what? You know. <laughs> but then she also likes like My Chemical Romance and Twenty One Pilots. Well, and it's just great to hear. Um, yeah. In that. Well, uh, with My Chemical Romance, I think. Welcome to the Black Parade will, when they redo this list in 10, 10 years, 20 years, whenever they redo this list, if they start from scratch, I wouldn't be surprised if Welcome to the Black Parade makes it somewhere high on the list. I don't know if it'll crack the top 10, but I think it would probably crack the top 20. That album was absolutely brilliant. 
And I re- the magazine is no longer in print, but at the time, Blender Magazine rated it the number one album of 2006, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was an absolute fantastic album, and it's one of the few emo albums I like. I mean, I that genre never really grabbed me, but that album certainly did. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, my 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 daughter's a big Panic Panic at the Disco fan, and they, uh, you know, especially their first two albums, I thought were were really solid, and that you know that had a lot to do with with um, uh, the guitarist on, on there, Ryan, and, and his last name escapes me right now, but he um, had like lists his influences as you know Fleetwood Mac and the Beatles and stuff like that, and and you hear it in those, and then. You know, Brandon, Brendan Yuri, um, who's now kind of in charge of the band after after that Ryan left, he uh, he's much more dramatic, and it kind of reminds me a lot of Sticks, whereas you had Dennis DeYoung, who was more of the dramatic, wanted to be a showman type, and then you have um, you know Tommy Shaw, um, much different. Oh, absolutely, they're very different styles. Um, Tommy Shaw was very different than his predecessor too, uh, John Kurluski, um, who was on I think the he was on all the wood nickel releases and I think he left the band in '75 and then Tommy Shaw came on about then. But some of the stuff he was doing was it was almost pastoral. It was very very different than anything that they did after he left and. I've heard that I used to work with a guy who was a huge Sticks fan, knew far more about them than I ever will. And he was saying that John Kurluski, after he left Sticks, he became a music teacher in LaGrange, Illinois, which is like 20 minutes from me right now. And he, I think he died of a cerebral hemorrhage in the mid-80s, but the stuff he did with Sticks is worth listening to just to hear how it gives you an appreciation of how much that band evolved. Right. Uh, because they were a very different band when he was in it than when Tommy Shaw took the reins from him. And and I didn't no sticks in the top ten, by the way. Not even Mr. Roboto. But yeah, uh, Kilroy <laughs> was here. Uh, it's that's another one of those eighties albums that I mean, I consider it one of the better concept albums ever made. Um, it, great stories start to finish. I mean, sticks hasn't really stood the test of time for me. I mean, I went through a phase where I listened to a lot of their music and listened to it incessantly. Um, but it, I, I had the Grand Illusion on CD, but I think the Grand Illusion and one of their live albums were the only ones I ever really had. And they've, over time, I just can't bring myself to listen to them anymore. And I think part of it is how they treated Dennis DeYoung in the end of how they basically kicked him out of the band that he had been such a huge part of. I think it's partially at a protest that I can't bring myself to listen to him, not even the classic stuff anymore. It it just has left a sour taste in my mouth. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you're like that tour that went along with what, you know, with the whole, like kind of Mr. Roboto, you know, era of sticks, my understanding is that really is what kind of destroyed the band. A lot of them didn't like the theatrics that were associated with it. And uh, there was a lot of pushback on it. Um, but that was, that was Dennis DeYoung. I mean, you, you knew yeah. that that's what you were going to get. 
Oh, absolutely. And I mean, now that I live in this area, he's he's a he's a local boy for here. I mean, is Sticks, Chicago, Ario Speedwagon, they're all Illinois based fans. I mean, granted, Ario is from down the road in uh, Champaign Urbana, but Sticks and Chicago were both from Chicago. The B side to Show Me the Way, the single. There's a song called Back to Chicago, and to this day, it's the only pop song I've ever heard that has a clarinet solo. (laughs) No. Know your Chicago history. I mean, I think Walt Perizader might have played clarinet here and there, but he mainly stuck to flute and sax and different versions of flute and sax. He rarely, even though he started out as a clarinetist, in Chicago, I don't think he touched one. Uh, yeah, I, I would, I, you know, as, as soon as I said that, I was like, no, that's a, that's a sax, an alto sax. So I was thinking of, uh, just you and me. But, uh, yeah, as somebody, so, so the other day I was listening to the radio station here locally and, and they were talking about it was one hit wonder day. And they, they asked the question and I got it right away. I was very surprised by this, but what is the greatest marimba solo in a, in a song? Uh, it's a one-hit wonder, and they said what this has been. This song has what was as widely known as the best marimba solo in a in a popular song. Can you guess which one it was? Uh, no, actually, I can't. <laughs> it was uh, "Moonlight Feels Right" by Starbuck. Oh, that's a that's a great song. It, it, it's not aged well, but I absolutely. I absolutely love its cheesy 70s-ness. Yes. <laughs> that and uh, Rock Me Gently by Andy Kim. I mean, there's there's, there's a cheesy delight to those songs. Uh, Magic by Pilot is another one. Uh, Night Chicago Died by Paper Lace. I, all, I put all those songs in kind of a similar category because those bands didn't really last. But those songs, they're just cheesy and fun, and they're of the era they're they're from. And they're just fun songs. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a lot of it. Um, is 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 the fun like a lot of a lot of the music from that era was just fun. It didn't need to mean anything. It just yeah. it just was something you could just dance to. You could just relax to. You just have have fun. And and I mean, it really sums up this the that part of the seventies as well. Um, with their kind of carefree attitude that they had but it it's I, I love listening to that kind of stuff I, I those are the ones that come on and I know all the words like right away I mean how can you not on some of, some of those even plays the, the night yeah. Chicago died I mean everybody knows that well they only they know the chorus and then they kind yeah. of get into that where I used to tell my daughter I said uh you know if you don't know the words of the song you can always tell when people don't know the words of the song so you'll be on a dance floor or you'll be someplace like that and you'll You'll start singing along. It's like the night Chicago died, and then you go to sip your drink while the part blah 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 blah. blah. Because it's like yeah, no, you act kind of play it off, but uh, yeah. but yeah, that's I mean that's I, I love that era. So we still got three more on, yeah. on this list. One one we've already talked about, um, but you know we've got number three is Joni Mitchell Blue, and uh, I get to. Admit this is where I check out of it. I'm 
<laughs> Me it's too. The only Joni Mitchell song I know is Both Sides Now, and that's only because of the movie Love Actually. <laughs> well, I know Help. Help, help me. I think I'm falling in love with you. Is that hers? Was Big Big Yellow Taxi hers? Yes. Yeah, that's... Okay, that's, okay, I, okay I, that's two songs of hers, I know then. Um, but I don't think any of those are on this album, to be no, honest with you. No, which is <laughs> kind of funny. It's the two Joni Mitchell songs I do know are not on this album. <laughs> There's there uh, a, an Australian group that did a cover of both sides now that uh, is called Gang of Youths. And they've got another their their big hit down under. I don't know that they have done much stateside. Um, it's "Let Me Down Easy" or something like that. Is and there's a live version from un, it's like MTV Unplugged from Australia, and it's the live version is fantastic. They're backed by a symphony, but I stumbled upon their cover of "Both Sides Now," which is decent, and they also. Who did um, Heroes, uh, David Bowie's Heroes, and that was used in uh, Justice League, the movie. It was, um, they used the Gang of Youths version, not the uh, Bowie version. Huh. But that's a band worth checking out, and I can I, I can toss their version of both sides now onto uh, the playlist, which and I'll link that up on uh, the Facebook. Outstanding, yeah, let's do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's like way more Joni Mitchell discussion than I've had in the, probably the last 20 years of my life. Yeah. And um, for only knowing two of her songs, that's probably the most Joni Mitchell discussion I'll probably ever have. <laughs> yeah. And if we have, maybe that should be like a weekly feature um, where we talk about Joni Mitchell in a, in a sort of an abstract way and act like we know what we we're talking about with her. Uh, I think that would be a good, good feature on this, on the show. Yeah. We could do something like that. <laughs> So they had number two at Beach Boys Pet Sounds. We talked about that earlier. Yeah, I, and and I'm 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 still on board. Um, at number two, I mean it's it's that's yeah. that's up there um, yeah, for that. Is the one thing I've noted? It's the one thing I've heard and read about that album is that album took off in the UK more than it did here. I mean that album at the time was bigger than the Beatles material of the same era over in the UK. I mean, it's the one time when the Beach Boys surpassed the Beatles on the opposite and in, in their own country. Whereas over here, the Beatles were still in, held in high regard. I think it's only through the prism of time that that album has gained the appreciation on this side of the pond that it already had over there. I mean, they, they heard the brilliance in it. They heard the genius in it when it first came out. And I think it took our country a little longer to really appreciate that. I, I, I can't understate, uh, you know, I use understate a lot, but this is one of those that I, it really, it, it is to think that it was, that it was recorded in 1965, 1966, that to me with the technology that they had at the time and with the, and the era was, I think was what made it so revolutionary is this, is this the uh, the sounds on it are just like they they blow you away and I for the longest time I thought it came from much later not much later but you know five six years later um, and I just because I just always sort of associated that that music with with that because in sixty five sixty six you weren't hearing kind of songs like this and they were maturing the the, the Beach Boys matured very quickly it, it, similar to the Beatles I mean you love love yeah. to do and then. Four or five years later, you've got Sergeant Pepper. 
Yeah. And this was another one like, um, you know, let's go surfing now. And then just three years later, three, four years later, you've got God Only Knows, which to oh. me is one of the greatest songs. It will be on my top five ever of, of songs yeah. recorded. Absolutely. It's, and I love the way they used it in the movie Love Actually. I mean, that was really a tip of the hat and a, a nod to the Beach Boys, the, the way they used that song in that movie. And it showed a real appreciation for the Beach Boys that I don't, I think the, in some regards, the Brits appreciate the Beach Boys more than we do over here at times, or at least that album. They, they certainly appreciated it before we did at the level, at that level. And um, I know it was appreciated here as well, but I think the Brits appreciated it on a much higher level, much earlier than we did. And the fact that it was, it was the, it came out with Wouldn't It Be Nice, which again, yeah. it's one. And it goes to one, and, and that song always brings me back to one of my favorite uh, kind of guilty pleasures of Fifty First Dates. But uh, oh, yeah, wouldn't used perfectly. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. It really is. It's a fantastic use of music in that movie. I mean, Adam Sandler has done some great soundtracks to his movies. He he knows the music to pick that fits his movies perfectly. I, I do have to give him credit there. Some of his movies are hit or miss with me, um, but the movies that are hit with me are largely because he's picked the right music to accompany. Yeah. And that and that's one of them. And, and so God Only Knows brings me into this other, you know, discussion that I have, which is with like, wouldn't it be nice as, as these tenors that were in this era, um, 60s and 70s. And I I look at Brian Wilson. I look at Carl Wilson. I look at David Palmer from Steely Dan on the on the first album. I look at Peter Cetera. I look at you know a lot of these kind of soaring, smooth tenors that you just don't hear anymore. And I was like, no. whatever happened to those tenors that that sing like that? Another one that comes to mind is uh, David Gates from Bread. Oh yeah, and and also his solo career, he did uh, the theme to uh, Goodbye Girl with Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, that's a decent song too, but most of his stronger that I think that was the only solo song he did that really charted. Uh, most of his highlights of his uh, singing career were with Brad, but yeah, he great voice. I mean, Brad is a little too mellow for my taste. I can listen to his song at a time, but if I were to listen to a whole album of theirs at once, I'd probably be out cold by the third song. You can listen to If, or you can listen to Everything I Own, but you can't listen to both. No, absolutely. I, I can In one sitting, you're right. I can listen to both, but I, I'd have to listen to other stuff in between. <laughs> yeah, you'd have that. That's when you, that's when you bring in the Thunderstruck. Yeah. Shake, shake you out of. Toss that right in the middle. Out of a, out of a song that, especially like Everything I Own, which is a song about the guy's dad, um, which everybody kind of takes as a love song. And I guess it is in a, in a sort of roundabout way. But when you think of it like that, then it's a little different. But it's, you know, it's a great song. Yeah. But it's definitely, it's definitely like the, that's the mellow rock era. That's, that's when you bought those four cassettes or two CDs at midnight on the, uh, on the UHF station that was going off the air and they just had the infomercials on there. You you had that and and you had like the greatest seventies mellow gold hits from like (laughs) by the 17 cassette tapes book. 
and that was on there. Yeah. Yeah, the and the, it was the soaring tenors, and it was the tight vocal harmonies. I mean, yeah, like you said, there was Chicago, which uh, I'm guessing our listeners might get sick of us referring to them, but <laughs> they are just to warn our listeners in advance. They are going to probably be a recurring staple that gets brought up. But um, Little River Band, Eagles, oh, yeah. Poco, I mean, Crazy Love is. Well, that one hits me every time. It's one of yeah. the most beautiful songs out there. Um, and speaking of soaring tenors, Paul Davis, I Go Crazy, another great 70s song that, I mean, that's a sucker punch to the heart every time I listen to it. And, and along with that, I mean, you've got, I mean, you brought up Poco, so, I mean, Timothy B. Schmidt. Oh, fantastic. Both, yeah. both Poco and the Eagles. Right. I mean, uh, Keep on Trying, I think, was his uh, big song with Poco, and the harmonies on that are absolutely gorgeous. And you can totally understand why the Eagles would have kind of reached in and poached him from Poco, and it wasn't the first time that happened. I mean, they, I think there's two, maybe three members of Poco that ended up in the Eagles. Randy Meisner. Yeah, Randy Meisner did too. Um, and the, the other... Uh, I've heard a story. I don't know if this is true, but I've, when Jim Messina left Poco and Paul Cotton replaced him, I've heard that it was on the recommendation of Peter Cetera because Peter Cetera was familiar with him from Illinois Speed Press, which was produced by Jimmy Garcia. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, that's uh, kind of what drove that song, Take Me Back to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, uh, Freddie Page, the uh, drummer. And Danny uh, Serafin mentions that in... Uh, his memoir, uh, Street Player, which we could probably dedicate a whole episode to that down the road because that's a brilliant memoir. A phone call saved him from basically getting mobbed up. He, if not for that phone call where he was invited to be a professional drummer, he would have ended up in the mob. <laughs> I mean, that's such a brilliant story to circle back around to. And the fact that Illinois Speed Press and Chicago were so tightly tied together, and there was a lot of, I don't, incestuous is probably the wrong word, because it, <laughs> it has negative connotations, but there was a lot of intermingling, thanks largely to Jimmy Garcia managing the He was producing Beach Boys in that era, and that's why Chicago and the Beach Boys were touring together a few times in the 70s and right. working together, so... It, we we have him to thank for a lot of brilliant music. And and speaking of brilliant, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up the list. Yeah. With uh, Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On," I mean, I mean, Marvin Gaye's Marvin Gaye, you know. Yeah. And 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 I I can't I can't dispute anything that that he's on. Um, is brilliant and and tragically taken from us, um, way 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 too early. Way but, uh, yeah, way too early. Definitely, and I noticed uh, Let's Get It On also made the top 500. It's much further down the list, but the fact that he has two albums that are on the list is well-deserved. I mean, two very different albums, uh, I'd say, but that just shows his versatility as well. Um, He he just had one of those one-in-a-million voices. Maybe two in a million. I'd say Otis Redding was up there too. Again, taken far too soon. I I put Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye on the same level. I would too. I would too. 
So that's our discussion of uh, top 500 albums. Um, we did note the lack of uh, Chicago albums on there. I think the one that stands out to me is, you know, the Chicago Transit Authority is, a, is in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Doesn't make the top 500 list on this. And we'll we'll delve into a little bit more. I mean, like I said, we, there's going to be a lot of Chicago on this podcast. Um, yeah, that's that's inevitable. But, you know, I've I've had a great time. This first, oh, I too. this first time, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, us doing some more uh, of this. I think everybody can check out the, the Facebook page. Yeah, James Smith Architecture. Um, it's on Facebook. Uh, I did notice there are a few other Dancing About Architecture pages. I think there's a music reviewing Dancing About Architecture as well. But I did mark this one as being a podcast, so it, we should be easy to find. We haven't yet created a logo um, I, that's something we got to work on, but we'll get there and growing pains and right. ironing out the kinks. We'll, we'll we'll get to that point. Well, I do appreciate everybody taking. I appreciate you taking your time to to talk with talk with me tonight, and I look forward to the next time. And appreciate everybody else uh, taking the time to take a listen and drop us a line if you're yeah, uh, absolutely. If you got uh, something you want to hear. I I haven't yet set up our uh, Gmail account, but I'm going to set up a Gmail account uh, for correspondence and. Something both of us will, Rich and I, Rick and I will both have access to, um, and we'll, either of us will be able to respond. So, either or both of us. So that that's another way you'll be able to contact us going forward. But I'll put that on the Facebook page once I get it set up. All right, that sounds sounds great. And once we get that on there, we'll be looking forward to hearing from everybody. So, until I guess next time, we'll. Uh, it's been Perp and Rick. Rick and Perp, however you want to do it. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we'll hear you next time. Or we'll hear you next time. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, have a great week. Talk to you in a week or whenever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good one, everyone. You too. Bye.